HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I'm Chava Perivan, co-host of Agave Road Trip on HRN here to talk about 818 Tequila. 818 creates their tequila using traditional methods that a family-owned and operate distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. From the blue agave they grow to their recycled glass bottle, 818 emphasizes the Earth's importance in all they do. Their distillery runs on biomass and solar power, which means they don't rely as much on fossil fuels and are able to reduce their carbon footprint. Their labels, corks, and boxes are all certified by the Forest Stewardship Council as coming from sustainability-managed forests. 818 is a proud member of 1% for the Planet, through which they support HRN as well as Sacred, my organization in Jalisco, where together we transform agave byproducts and water waste into adobe bricks that are donated to local infrastructure projects, like a local library in Zapotitlan de Vadillo. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their sustainability efforts and find 818 near you. 818 has been part of so many magical nights for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. Welcome to HRN on Tour. This is Christine Sykes-Lowe. I am at High Water Festival in Charleston, South Carolina a music festival that is curated by the band Shovels and Rope. And this year is headlined by many great acts such as Jack White, Modest Mouse, and Black Pumas, among many others. High Water also has a culinary component, bringing in an array of local food vendors as well as educational offerings. Which brings me to my guest today, Cyrus Buffum with Seaborne Oyster Company. Welcome, Cyrus. Thank you so much, Christine. It's a pleasure to be here. Great to have you. You taught an oyster education class, which I was able to sit in and see a part of what you do. Tell the listeners how you got involved in the festival and what patrons were able to take part in today. Sure. So uh, this is our, I want to say, third or fourth year. Whichever year the festival started, we've been doing it ever since the, this, the inaugural uh, High Water Festival. And, and our involvement really began out of uh, a, a dear friendship of mine with a, a gentleman called uh, Paul Bannister. And Paul's one of the producers of High Water. Um, he is uh, one of the managers of Shovels and Rope, or perhaps the manager. And, um, and it was through my friendship with Paul that he and I would go to a local restaurant in Charleston called Leon's. 
and where we have our oysters. And, and um, we would work our way not only through the menu, the oyster raw bar menu, having our oysters, but we'd also explore other geographies. We'd get oysters from Prince Edward's Island. We'd get oysters from New England area, from the Gulf, etc. And as we were working our way through the menu, typically starting with low salinity first and kind of working our way up to higher salinity, I would describe the ways in which geography and seasonality is influencing the different flavor profiles of the oyster. And that was kind of our, our dinner entertainment um, on, on several occasions. And when Paul uh, and company were, were creating the High Water Festival, he said, you know, let's, let's, let's turn this and materialize these conversations and kind of this tutorial that you've been giving casually over these dinners. Let's turn this into an actual experience at High Water. And let's, you know, let's, let's combine the culinary element with the educational element. And that was kind of the birth of Seaborn's involvement with with doing these classes. And so this weekend, you're catching me at the tail end of our our participation. We've done uh, four classes. We did three classes in general admission, one class, kind of a, an ongoing rolling class in the platinum section. And uh, and so we've, we've had incredible participation and it is an add-on experience for high water attendees. So those that come to the festival have the option then to buy, in this case, uh, a, a, t- a ticket to the Seaborn Oyster Education class. So um, we had some great students, quick learners, of course, and um, beautiful weather. So we're, we're excited to be here again. Yeah, the, the weather is amazing. And I was able to sit in for a little bit on that class. And um, I thought I knew something about oysters, but you really you really dove deep. And um, there's obviously so much biology behind it, but there's actually a little sex education. Absolutely. And, um, you know, just the reproductive cycle, the feeding cycle, um, the habitats, especially down here in the low country. Sure. Can you go into a little detail on what you shared with folks? Yeah. So the way that, and of course, every class is going to be slightly different, but uh, I don't have a, a rigid curriculum per se. Maybe I need to create one. But um, the, the essence of the way that I frame the, the class is around the other, all, all of the variables that influence the experience that we as, as consumers have when we're eating an oyster. And, and those variables are, I mean, primarily geography. So what is the landscape in which the oyster is grown? You've got time as a variable. Where in the animal's life cycle in, in terms of kind of seasonality and its it's um, waxing and waning of all the different functions of the oyster. Where is it in that that cycle? So time as kind of a variable, um, and then and then of course on kind of a, a micro scale, this is perhaps a subcategory of geography would be kind of the microclimates of where the oyster is, which is going to influence the variety of the oyster that you're experiencing. So I like to frame a lot of the subject matter around those two kind of variables of of time and place. Um, and then I expand kind of inward into those verticals into, um, you know, not only the 101 oyster education, but kind of 201, 301, maybe even a little 401 level. And um, uh, I have a lot of fun. We, we use a, a chart, a harbor chart of the Charleston area, kind of the Charleston Harbor entrances chart. And, um, and we can show attendees where we are today at the festival grounds. And I have them come up and kind of find where we are on the chart. And we identify the nearest waterway, which... In the case of uh, Riverfront Park, where we are right now, uh, it is essentially we're at the corner of Noisette Creek and the Cooper River. And uh, we then imagine getting into a boat, depending on the class size, it's typically an imagined bigger boat than the the boat that we use when we're out there harvesting our oysters. But we imagine getting into a boat, 
sailing down the Cooper River into Charleston Harbor, out of the mouth of Charleston Harbor into the Atlantic Ocean, and then working our way north up the coast uh, past Sullivan's Island, and then diverting quickly westward into the next inlet, which is called Breach Inlet. And our oysters come from the Breach Inlet area. We have several creeks that we manage. Uh, we've got five acres of shellfish grounds that we have under management. Um, we lease those beds from the state of South Carolina. Okay. And we, we deal exclusively in the wild oyster. So, which means that we are beholden more so than, than other oyster farms in the Southeast. We're very much beholden to the seasonality and these natural cycles that are going to express themselves through the different pr flavor profiles year round of the oyster. And, and so our oyster, our oyster season, the wild oyster season ends on paper, I believe May 15th, but we have uh, prematurely kind of our policy at Seabourn is we end the season once the oysters begin to spawn. And that happens around 68, 69, 70 degrees. Yesterday, water temps in Charleston Harbor were 69. Today, they're 70. So the oysters have either begun to spawn or, or, or on the edge of spawning. And so we, we call it, we call the season before. So the oysters that were experienced today and yesterday at high water were uh, the last of this season. And we'll, we'll spend then the next couple of months doing a lot of farm restoration work and then it's a, a few months off, and then we, we start building up momentum again for a season opener once water temperatures dip back below 70 degrees. So um, well, that's a lot, I know, a mouthful. It is a lot. But. No, well, it's, um, it's a process, and it is you, you honor that sustainability component by taking that breather. Obviously, some um, harvesting, harvesting rules are in place already to begin with, but, sure. um, you know, bookending it a little bit even further out is your is your way of uh contributing to that yeah. which is awesome um well and, and just to kind of piggyback off of that christine um one you know one fascinating development within the oyster industry predominantly in the southeast uh, where where water temperatures are warmer our wild uh oysters are going to spend any time of the year where where temperatures are above 70 exhausting themselves uh, in the act of reproduction. So this is the sex education that you were alluding to. Mm -hmm. And during that time, the, the animal from a culinary, you know, from a, from a, food, from a food item, um, it loses a lot of that kind of flavor, those flavor elements that we as consumers enjoy tasting. And, and the months where it's colder, when the animal is not exerting itself so much and allocating so much energy on reproduction, rather it's it's eating food and it's converting that food into, into bulking up, into biomass. We as consumers taste, we find that taste far more enjoyable than we do an exhausted uh, oyster that is, has shrunk in biomass because of how much energy it's taken to spawn. And so as a result, most of the warm water climates, i.e. the Southeast, are limited in kind of their seasonality of a ripe, if you will, kind of a ripe oyster to those colder colder months. And uh, however, the oyster industry has, again, especially in the Southeast, uh, grown by way of a technology called triploid technology. And triploid animal is, is, is an animal, it's a sterile oyster that's uh, created. There, there was a, a patent on that, this technology from Rutgers University, I think beginning in the 1990s. Patent has since run out. But that technology creates a sterile animal, which now is no longer needing to 
allocate all this energy in the summertime so sterile triploid oysters continue to grow and grow and grow, therefore able to reach that market size, that harvestable size sooner than the wild variety. We, uh, as an oyster company in South Carolina, could certainly leverage that technology, but for us, from a philosophical standpoint, we've chosen to kind of draw a, a line in the sand and, and, and work only with our wild animals because it is the only way to honor uh, the integrity of these natural systems that we're all beholden to, these natural rhythms, these ups and downs, these, you know, these cycles. And um, so for us, even though it means having to, to force 12 months of a, you know, a, of a year into potentially six months of harvestable time, to us, uh, it, it's our way to honor these natural s systems, these natural cycles um, in, in a more kind of authentic way than if, if, we, if we use that technology and if we leverage that technology only to create a harvestable product 12 months out of the year. So that that is kind of this super nuanced area of, of the oyster industry, especially in areas where water temperatures are warmer, therefore the grow, the, the harvestable timeline is much shorter. Triploid technology, we're seeing it being adopted more and more so, especially in the Southeast. Let's talk about harvesting <laughs> All right. in general. Great. So um, I actually went on my first wild oyster harvesting trip in February. Okay, beautiful. Um, in the Awendal area, uh -huh. Bull Bay, yeah. um, which uh, for those listening is about 30, 30 miles uh, north of the Mount Pleasant, Charleston area. It was a little treacherous. I mean, I'm just trying to explain it to people who have never done something like this, but it was so exhilarating and it was so fun. And it was a, it was a warmer day, which you know, it was nice. I had my waders on and my boots and, um, but explain to what the process is like when you're out looking, sure. first of all, where you find them sure. and the rules around it and sure. everything of that nature. So this is one of the elements I touched on in the class. Uh, the majority of our oysters in South Carolina live in what's called the intertidal zone, which is the portion of water between high and low tide. The reason for that is is primarily because of the high salinity levels around the low country. We don't have a lot of freshwater inputs. We've got a few rivers like the Santee River further north in the state, which does empty a large freshwater uh, element in, into kind of that that area. But by and large, most of our waterways in, in the low country are going to be primarily influenced by the Atlantic Ocean and the salinity of the Atlantic. And so as a result of elements that I won't necessarily go into, but the majority of our oysters grow between high and low tide. And so as a result, an oysterman or an oyster woman uh, or oyster person, they will need to go at low tide to get to have access to the oysters. Because if we go at, at high tide, um, all the oysters are going to be underwater and we'll need, uh, you know, s snorkel material, even though our waters are so turbid that it would be very, very little, little visibility. So from an efficiency standpoint, it just makes most sense to go at low tide. All the oysters or most of the oysters are going to be exposed at low tide. And that's when we are beholden to, you know, to the oysters. And uh, the, the challenging thing about uh, being dependent on the tide is that some weeks you might have a low tide at sunrise. Some weeks you might have a low tide at sunset. And then the other element is tide, the, the, the extremes of a tide are going to be influenced by the lunar cycle. So we're having to pay attention not only to the tide calendar, we're having to pay attention to the lunar calendar because when you've got 
a, a new moon, when the sun and the moon are on the same side of the earth, that creates a more extreme uh, high and low tide. And so as a result, we not only have more access to our farm, we have more access to our oyster beds, but we have longer access to work. And so what we've begun doing uh, in the first few seasons, we would uh, harvest around the restaurant's delivery schedule. And they would say, we want oysters every Tuesday and Thursday. And we, we quickly realized that there were many you know, Tuesdays and Thursdays or Mondays and Wednesdays, whatever the calendar schedule was, where it was next to impossible to get access to our oysters because it was either a, a neap tide, you know, a, 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 um, a tide where uh, the, the moon is at quarter phase where the, you know, those big gravitational bodies are not working to help drop the tide. Or there was a, a, a big wind offshore that was kind of pushing the water in, you know, all these different elements. And, and we couldn't get oysters. And then I quickly realized that there are optimal conditions and those conditions are when the tide is really low and um, when it stays low for a long time. And so now we've started harvesting exclusively around new and full moons, a, a couple or a few days on either end of the new and full moon. And uh, what we do is we put in our boat at the, at the nearby boat landing. We, we pull the boat to the boat landing. We, we load up whatever gear we need, which is basically just you know, extra layers if it's cold out, especially mm -hmm. you were there out in February. Make sure you have plenty of water and snacks because you don't want to get hungry out there. And then um, and then start making our way to the oyster beds a couple hours before low tide. And uh, and we, we beach the boat in one kind of section of our oyster beds where we've kind of got a clearing, which we call the landing. And uh, then we get out and the boat basically two hours into our being out there is completely high and dry. If we needed to leave, we wouldn't be able to because the tide has then dropped. That, it the, is a tricky, it it's is a tricky very, thing. It is very, very tricky. Yeah. So you want to be very careful because if you hurt yourself, you're not getting back until the water comes back up. And then um, for us, and I know a lot of uh, wild um, oystermen do it differently, but for us, all we use is a small hammer and a milk crate to harvest. So our method of, of cultivation and husbandry is one that's been practiced for well over 100 years, probably close to 150, if not more than that. And it's the act of, of, um, of intervening in the natural kind of clumping together or the clustering of oysters. And let's talk about yes. that because um, that was one thing that was new to me, new knowledge to me was specifically to this area because there's nothing the for the oyster right. to attach to. Yeah. Tell, tell people so, about how that works. You know, works. I find this, and I've, I've kind of come to this realization later on in, in, um, in my career as an oysterman, and this goes back to the geographic and kind of geological influence on oysters, is oysters need solid substrate to live, meaning they need something that they, when they're in their kind of baby infancy stage, they can land on and attach to, and that object is not going to float away. It's not going to you know, move significantly with the tides or with the currents. And the reason for that is oysters need water to come to it, ultimately, to bring it its food. If it's moving at the same rate as its food is moving, it's never really going to be able to, to feed and they'll, it'll die. And so finding something solid to attach to is critical to the survival of oyster populations. And when you look at geologically the, the coastline, you look at kind of the granite composition of, of the Northeast and you gradually work your way south and things become less granular, if you will, or, you know, um, or, you know, granite based, 
and and you've got rocks, you know, along Cape Cod Bay, you know, rocky shorelines there, and you start working your way further south and south and south, and down in the Low Country, the majority of our substrate, meaning our sediment, the the stuff that our uh, our riverbeds and our creek beds are made of, is incredibly fine, silty sediment, which we call pluff mud. And uh, pluff mud, if you if you step in it barefoot. You'll sink down a, a couple of feet, depending on kind it's of. It's sort of oily too. It, it is. There's kind of. I've heard it described as, um, as as mayonnaise kind of uh, yeah. texture. So, the um, the the pluff mud particles are super super fine. They're microscopic compared to even say a sand particle, and certainly compared to a rock of the northeast. Uh, and, and so oysters don't have much that they can naturally grab onto in the low country because of the absence of, we don't have any natural rock around here. We don't have any kind of natural sediment that is much bigger than a grain of sand. And so oysters don't have many options to attach to. And so what is the what happens to be the most convenient substrate for an oyster to attach to is another oyster. And so that's why in the low country, what we know as a low country oyster is a clustered oyster, meaning it's many generations of oysters that have grown on top of each other because there isn't any other real estate for these oysters to attach to. There's nothing of kind of um, sturdy enough uh, character for them to to attach to. So the cluster is synonymous with the low country oyster. And, uh, you know, we love the cluster because it is representative of the unique nuanced ecological conditions of the low country. And, uh, and, and I could go on about, you know, the expression of the cluster in our own foodways, cultural foodways, such as the oyster roast. Uh, and if you want me to, I'd love to. So the oyster roast, <laughs> yes, and this is, please. this is something that is, um, again, you know, that just the longer I've, I've worked on the water, the more I've come to revel something as basic and as simple as the, the low country oyster roast. And we might certainly associate it with the low country, but if we take it a few steps further and kind of um, peel back what's behind the oyster roast, we, we go from the oyster roast to then the clustered oyster, right? Because the oyster roast is the most convenient, efficient way to open a bunch of interconnected, multi-generational oysters that are all growing on top of each other. It's certainly easier to throw it over a you know, a, a fire with a burlap sack and have them all open rather than right. handing it to somebody to, to shuck every single one of these individual, very difficult oysters. And so the, the means of eating that oyster, of getting access to that oyster is the oyster roast, Steaming right? it all at once. Steaming it all yep. at once. Mm -hmm. And, um, and the reason why that methodology was born was because the cluster exists. And the reason why the cluster exists is because oysters will pile on top of each other when they don't have other options of substrate. Yeah. So the oyster roast is truly an expression of um, the the specific environmental conditions of the low country. And so not only is, an ex is it an expression of culture, but really the culture is an expression of environment. And that's what that, you know, excites me about, you know, about things, about a food way such as, as, a, as an oyster roast, because it ultimately is you connect it directly back to the physical conditions of, uh, of, of a place's environment. And, and to me, that connection is really important to connect culture 
to natural conditions. It's because a stamp in time. It too. is a stamp in time. It absolutely. really is. It kind of shows the the life cycle, like you said, and on so many different levels. Yeah. Um, so you have an interesting genealogy. First of all, can you say your full name because there's quite a few names in so, there. So well, I, I I like think think like most just just three. Um, <laughs> but uh, I could have swore there were four. No, no, just okay. just three. But <laughs> Cyrus Alexander Buffum is my my full name, and um, my parents claim that Cyrus was not a family name that they knew of. Although going back far enough, it, it was. But they claimed that they just read it in a book and liked it. Um, Alexander is named after my my great 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 grandfather, who is a, a sea captain, a, a, a captain out of Duxbury, Massachusetts. And, and I was born and raised on Cape Cod, uh, came down to Charleston about 20 years ago to go to go to school, go to the College of Charleston. And um, uh, Captain Alexander Wadsworth was, uh, was a sea captain, born in 1808, died in 1900. And the name of our company, Seaborne Oyster Company, uh, comes directly from the birth of Captain Wadsworth and his wife Beulah's second son, uh, the story goes that Beulah and Captain Wadsworth were on board this, this ship in 1853, and they were delivering ice from New England that was harvested from one of the ponds in, in Massachusetts. And uh, at that point, India, British colony, um, had a big demand for ice, for, you know, for cocktails and for refrigeration of food. Uh, but probably maybe mostly cocktails. I don't know. We're going to have to fact check that. <laughs> and um, so they were delivering this ice to uh, to Calcutta was the end kind of the end goal, the end and delivery point. And at some point, Beulah, uh, she was pregnant. She went into labor in the middle of the Bay of Bengal, Bay of Bengal. And um, she gives birth to a baby boy. And unfortunately, she died of complications about a week after after giving birth. The child survived, so they named him Seaborn, uh, being born quite literally at sea. So his name was Alexander Seaborn Wadsworth. And um, it, for me, when I was younger, hearing that story, it sounds like one of these larger-than-life, you know, fictitious stories. Um, but to me, kind of acknowledging all of the literal and figurative meaning of that word. Uh, it just seemed like an obvious name to use when you know when, when I started um, coming up with this idea of what is now Seaborn Oyster Company, and um, you know it's a way to honor honor that kind of family legacy of of working on the water. It's a way to to honor the legacy of of Beulah, uh, who unfortunately you know d died of of you know giving birth and bringing this baby into the into the world, and and it's kind of a way for me to remain connected to this long uh, legacy of, of, of people whom I never knew, never will know, but without them, my life would not be possible. And so this idea of kind of paying back to kind of the, um, you know, to the, to, the, to the spirit of, if you will, all of those, you know, those hundreds of thousands of people that have come before us to make our lives possible is, you know, a really special thing to kind of look back at that and to try to try to piece together why it is that we are the way that we are uh, by way of all these incredible lives that came before us and then also a way to kind of create a new uh, you know a future of you know a future life and um, so it's 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 a fun name just because our oysters come from the sea so in the most literal sense they are seaborne but there's this whole 
uh, there's this whole other element to it. There's a whole maritime history to your family. So that's, that's interesting. And, and so how long has Seaborn been around? So 2000, uh, December of 2015 is when I got my commercial fishing license. And I actually started clamming first up in kind of McClellanville, Awanda area where you got, had your, your, your fateful oyster harvesting experience. And, um, I shortly after that kind of officially started Seaborn. So early 2016, I think the first delivery to Leon's was our first uh, restaurant that we sold to was maybe March or so in 2016. So six years, I guess, that we've been we've been around. And uh, every year, every season, we've learned something new. Every season we're reiterating uh, something that we learned the season before and constantly evolving. I mean, case in point, the fact that first couple seasons we were harvesting according to the schedule of our restaurants and now we're harvesting according to the schedule of the moons. And, and so that kind of natural progression shows that we're still learning and we're going to continue to be learning season after season after season um, to try to, to do what we can to honor these animals and, and to honor our environment here in the low country and to try to tell that story and to, and to connect consumers with our waterways, something that we take for granted every single day that we're out there. Um, and, and our hope is that the oyster can serve as that vehicle to connect consumers with this, this watery, wild place that is the low country. So how can people find you and follow you? Well, they can follow us on uh, Instagram, although I have to confess we've been terrible at Instagram this season. I think we posted a photo of the temperature, water temperature at the beginning of the season, and we haven't posted since. So, but you can certainly- You're busy harvesting. We're busy, yeah. <laughs> you can certainly follow us on, on uh, Instagram at seaborn.us, S-E-A-B-O-R-N.us. And then, um, you know, since we are at the end of the season, product won't be available until November. But uh, come November, just keep a, keep your eyes on our our Instagram channel and our Instagram page rather, and um, we will be announcing who we're selling to, what events we're part- participating in, and um, one thing that we've begun doing is is diverting most of what comes out of the water now, rather than selling entirely to restaurants. We're now reallocating much of that volume into programmatic uh, uh, activation. So. Things like today, you know, today and yesterday, and we do farm tours, and we do oyster tastings, we do uh, wine and oyster pairings, and so it's a way to again tell the story about Seaborn Oyster Company, tell the story of the oyster uh, in a way that we aren't quite able to do when we drop off a bag of oysters to our, you know, to our our favorite restaurant. Although we we love and are so grateful for these restaurants, but it doesn't give us that chance to interact with those who are eating our oysters in the same way that say, you know, today and yesterday gave us. Well, thank you, Cyrus. Christine, it's been thank you a very pleasure, much. Uh, taking part in your class for a little bit. I and appreciate to, you sitting and to speak in. with you. And um, um, I plan to go and check out the rest of the festival and go see ahead. what's going on. You should take full advantage. <laughs> Thanks for listening to HRN on tour. You can listen to all of our coverage from the road on heritageradionetwork.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. 
Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.